0: pound the rock the score's nba podcast my name is joseph casharo and i'm joined as always remotely for at least one more episode by father-to-be joe wolf
1: what's up cash um happy belated father's day to all the dads out there of which i am not yet one as you mentioned basically just in a holding pattern here waiting for something to happen and uh in the meantime i'm just you know trying to keep my mind occupied kill time so that's what i'm doing here
0: well you know who's got a lot of time to kill it's the Philadelphia 76ers. Oh, baby. <laughs> uh, they've been eliminated in the second round again. Well, last year was the first round, but yeah. Still, still haven't cracked the conference final barrier with this core. And uh, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about a lot of things, but I, I think the place we have to start is Hawks Sixers game seven. Trey Young had an awful shooting night, but came alive down the stretch. Kevin Huerter.
1: Is that. How it's pronounced? No, like- I just
0: I always I always do that because uh for anyone listening in Toronto who's been to a Raptors game on the Hawks were in town, uh Herbie oh, Kuhn, the yeah the uh Raptors uh PA announcer always really like Germanizes Kevin Huerter's name and, and then when you hear Kevin speak you realize that it's probably not pronounced like that. <laughs> it's Herder. It's Kevin Herder.
1: I'm sure our, our Toronto based listeners will know how extra Herbie is yeah. on the pronunciations, but yeah. um, he's a legend. So, yeah.
0: Well, Kevin Herter hurt the Sixers and Philly fans pride on Sunday because Kevin Herter sent their asses home or sent them packing. They were already home. They had a game seven at home. They lost to Kevin Herter. It's Hawks. Yeah, but it, it was uh, look, it was a fun game. Uh, game sevens are usually a slog. This one was no different, but it was fun. It was competitive. It had its moments it came down to the wire for the most part. Hawks pulled away a little bit down the stretch Gallo, Gallo, of all people, makes one of the game-breaking plays. Hawks were up four, I believe, at the time with uh, maybe just under a minute to go. He ends up with Embiid, the Embiid assignment somehow on that play. I got to go back and watch it. Don't remember how that happened, but Embiid uh, licking his chops, thinking I got Gallo in front of me, spins off him. Gallo ends up reaching around, pokes the ball loose for one of Joel Embiid's eight turnovers in the game. And then leaks out the other way for an uncontested breakaway jam. Look, poison bias aside, I gotta say I- I'm actually like super, super happy for Danilo Gallinari because the guy's been through a lot in his career physically. Never really consistently got to be the player he could have been, despite being one of the better offensive players of you know the last like half decade, decade. But uh, wasn't himself this year. Clearly, even in the playoffs, hasn't really been able to give the Hawks what I think I was hoping he could. But ends up making some really big plays for them down the stretch in a game where Bogdanovich was hobbled and they really needed those, you know, good Gallo minutes, obviously. And Kevin Herter, we mentioned being the star of the game. So it, it's, I'm very happy to see Gallo in his first conference finals because the guy deserves it and the Hawks deserve to be there, man. Like they really outclassed the Knicks in an unexpected four or five matchup. And then yeah, Embiid was hobbled, but you know, Embiid gave them the business for the majority. It's not like Embiid wasn't Embiid for the most part as incredible as it was given that he was on one leg joel Embiid was dominant in this series and the hawks still beat the sixers man and and you know i know philly was also without danny green with the hawks were without deandre hunter who's huge for their defense bogey was hobbled in the end so all the credit in the world to nate mcmillan the hawks trey young even trey himself i know he shot horribly in game seven but made some big shots late 22 year old in his first playoffs shuts down msg deals with heckling Sixers fans, takes another bow and
1: has his team in the conference finals.
0: Do you yeah, have anything I mean, you want to add from the Hawks perspective before we get into uh, the postmortem here on the Sixers? Well,
1: look, you mentioned Gallo and I don't think it was just game seven. I thought he had a really good series. Mm-hmm. But, you know, defensively, like, look, he's, he's not a good defender at this stage. He's very upright. Like, he doesn't move his feet especially well. But as far as just being in the right spots, like making good reads and rotations. I thought like he was pretty solid at that end of the floor. There was, you know, that possession at the end of game five, after the Hawks had made that ridiculous comeback from 26 points down, there was that possession where it ended basically with John Collins, like swatting Tobias Harris from behind at the rim. But leading up to that Gallo made two really nice defensive rotations to essentially blow up what the Sixers were trying to do after, you know, the Hawks had basically trapped the ball. Sixers had a four on three. Gallo steps up to kind of take away Embiid on the roll and then makes another rotation after Collins closed out to Tobias Harris in the corner. Gallo made like a really nice rotation essentially to to stymie Harris on the drive and like forced him to kick the ball back to Embiid. He does stuff like that. He's like, he is an aware defender at the least. And I think this can kind of like flow into our subsequent conversation maybe about Philly, but like they don't have the kind of offense that is going to make someone like Gallo, especially uncomfortable because they don't have guys who sort of just absolutely shred you off of the dribble and like can really take advantage of a guy who doesn't quite have the footwork or the foot speed. And there are limitations there. We saw that, you know, when Ben Simmons spun off of him in the post and gave himself a look at a, a wide open layup or dunk that would have tied the game with under four minutes to play. But he passed the ball off. Like, <laughs> they're, you know, between him, between Tobias Harris, it's like their perimeter players just don't really stress a defense out. Um, I think the Sixers became extremely predictable. And, you know, it, it's, not, it's not just a gallo. Like, obviously, Herder had a massive game seven. Bogey had his moments in the series, even though I think he struggled on the whole. And I think what we just saw at the end of the day was the Hawks supporting cast being miles ahead of where the Sixers supporting cast was. And that was especially glaring when it came to the bench. But even if you look at the starters, like at the end of the day, man, like I think John Collins over the last three, four games of the series was better than Tobias Harris was. And, you know, Seth Curry was massive for the Sixers, but he could not paper over the fact that they didn't have the on-ball creation that they needed, right? Like, his off-ball creation was huge. His shot-making, his movement shooting was huge. But because he's not, you know, a playmaker, he's not a self-creator, he's not really relieving any of the pressure from Embiid. And so... You and I were texting midway through the third quarter. It was like a one point game at the time. And I'm like, if Embiid doesn't pull out something absolutely special, there is no way the Sixers are winning this game because you could just tell there was nobody else on the Sixers aside from Curry, basically, who was going to do anything at the offensive end for the rest of that game. I just didn't really think that Embiid was going to have enough left in the tank to basically get them across the finish line by himself. And that absolutely proved to be the case. And that's why you see him like committing those turnovers. And that's why you see him running out of gas because like every possession, they're like dumping him the ball and trying to get out of the way basically. But if he gets double teamed, it's like, you know, he has to either break the double team. He has to find a passing angle that may not be there. And then, you know, on that last possession, it's like a guy who's playing on one good knee to begin with and you know, for for all the improvements that he's made in his game, his face-up game, like his jump shooting, he's still not like, he's not Nikola Jokic in terms of his ball skill, right? Right. Like you don't want your center on a crucial end of game possession to be having to try and create something from the top and like driving the ball into the middle when even if it's Gallinari on him, it's like, okay, well then there's John Collins essentially coming up to help as he goes to that spin move because he's guarding Ben Simmons in the dunker spot. It's too much hence, to ask.
0: Hence, 16 turnovers in the final two games. For me, he had eight turnovers in back-to-back games in game six and seven. And that, look, yo, that's something I've killed him for for the last few years. And even last night, I said, look, he does not deserve blame for this series. I like, pretty much could not do anything else, Joel Embiid, in this series on one leg. But... You know, he does have to wear that. The guy had eight turnovers in two straight games. To your point, he has been put in a position where it's hard for him to avoid that unless he drastically improves his ball skills and literally becomes a completely different player than the one that is currently
1: dominating. But even then, like, Jokic got bounced in four games in the second round for more or less the same reason. Like, it's too much to ask a center to do that. You know what Embiid's fourth quarter usage rate was in this series? Something obscene. 41.5%. Yeah. Okay. So of all players in the second round, there was one player who had a higher fourth quarter usage rate than that. It was Donovan Mitchell. Frankly, I think the fact that Donovan Mitchell had to carry that heavy and offensive load caught up to the Jazz. And Mitchell's a guard who shot 45% on 11.5 pull-up threes per game in that series against the Clippers. Embiid can't do that. He's trying to do this. He's trying to create everything for himself and for his teammates in the half court. And he's having to do it on one good knee while anchoring their defense at the other end of the floor. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not going to put eight turnovers on him and say that, like, that's the reason they lost. Like, okay, that's part of the reason they lost. But, like, that was also inevitable. That's what's going to happen when you ask your center to do all that. And... You know we're beating around the bush and dancing around the issue here because it's so obvious. But like the fact is, they don't have a point guard, and they haven't really had one throughout the Embiid era. Markel Fultz was supposed to be that guy. He wasn't that guy. Jimmy Butler was kind of that guy for a hot minute. They let him walk. Jimmy Butler was was that
0: guy. Let's be honest. Like he—he's not a point guard. But Jimmy Butler, in a lot of ways, was that guy.
1: And that was the best iteration of the team that we've seen. Exactly. Like, it's certainly not a coincidence. Yeah, exactly. And and so here they are, you know, with the same problem that they've had, you know, without a, a proper lead offensive initiator, you know, a lead guard who can handle the ball, pass, and shoot off of the dribble. Like... I'm sorry. They don't have that guy. Seth Curry is really nice. But I, if he is like your second most reliable offensive player down the stretch of an important playoff game, you're fucked. And like if Tobias Harris is basically your most reliable pick and roll ball handler, you're fucked. And that's why the Sixers are fucked. Like, yeah, I, it's it's just like it's obviously a little bit more complicated than that. But I mean, I, it, but it's right not, now, it,
0: it's not much more complicated than that. man. <laughs> like, yeah. I get that, like, maybe it gets old, it gets tiresome to hear NBA writers, media analysts, whatever, consistently beat this drum. And I know, like, for one, I have beat this drum as loud as anyone the last few years. But I, like, I don't know how many more times we can watch this. And maybe the answer is zero, because maybe Ben Simmons is done there. But I, I don't know how many more times or how many times in general we need to watch this or how we can continue to watch this and not keep beating the same drum. Like, we came into the season saying this about the Sixers. We came out of last season saying this about the Sixers. Even as they got the number one seed in the East this year, we said it about the Sixers. Other than the hometown Philly connection, there's a reason they were most loudly tied to Kyle Lowry and trade talks because a lot of the things he does perfectly addressed the very needs they have. Like, this was not a secret. And so it truly does boggle my mind, especially... Daryl Morey, I know people can get on him for like outsmarting himself, the analytics stuff, whatever. The point is Daryl Morey, if there's one thing he proved in Houston is that he understood the value of stars in the NBA and understood how you win in the NBA. And it starts with stars. You know, there's a reason he hoarded assets to eventually get James Harding, did it again with Chris Paul, you know, obviously it failed with Westbrook and stuff, but he understood that value. And so it was so out of character for him to at the Not just that they didn't make the move for Lowry or whoever at the deadline, but that after that deadline passed, I don't know if you remember this, but he came out and said that, you know, the asking price for certain players was too high and then said, and, and you know, personally, I think George Hill is actually like a huge upgrade for us and like what we need... And it was like, look, I get, obviously he's not going to throw George Hill under the bus after just acquiring him, but the fact that he even went there and like made a comment like that, it's like, really you, Daryl Morey, who has always understood the difference between game-changing, game-breaking talent and just solid talent, you really think George Hill is a huge upgrade for you? And if so, what does that say about your team already?
1: You know, like... Well, I think to your point, I don't think he actually did believe that. (laughs) I think he, like, come on. No,
0: well... But, I think okay. I
1: think they wanted to get Lowry. They they made a calculated decision that what the Raptors were asking for was too much. And I I really don't want to like no, no. litigate it or like get into whether that was true or not. We don't know exactly right. what they offer or what the asking price actually was. You know, we have some vague idea. I think you and I, even at the time, both said like we would have pulled the trigger on that deal if we were Philly. Yeah. I don't think... It is A, like completely unreasonable or B, out of character for Daryl Morey to have said, this isn't the move. This isn't the time to push all our chips into the middle for a a 35-year-old on an expiring contract. You know, that said, it's like now is the time, like they're out of time, you know, and has two years left on his deal. We're starting to see, you know, disgruntled superstars on stagnating teams asking out Basically around this time, you know, with two years or a year and a half left on their deal. And so they kept their powder dry for some other trade. If like Bradley Beal becomes available, if Zach Levine becomes available, like, do they a have guy that juice? fits the
0: timeline a little better?
1: Yeah, yeah, it fits the timeline a little better, but also just as like more of a long term solution. Like right. And, you know, not 35 year old Kyle Lowry, who is very good still, but is on the decline. Like, let's be real, he's declining. So I I know, like, it looks awful now, especially because George Hill in that Hawks series put up 35% true shooting on 11% usage, it was a minus 15 in 21 minutes in game seven. Like, it couldn't possibly look worse right now. I also think it, it was reasonable for them to say, you know, we don't think making, like, it's too much pressure to put on this one season to throw all these assets on the table for a guy who we don't think can really help us enough long-term. I don't think that's insane, but like, they need to now use those assets to actually get the person that they need.
0: The problem is that I think, and the Sixers are just the latest example of it, but what NBA teams seem to figure out, like these you know contenders that continue to fall short and end up with players like Embiid or whether it was Harden and Houston asking out whoever it was, I feel like these teams they they never realize they're out of time or they don't have in, until it's too late like when they realize it's out they're out of time or okay now it's time to make that move it's usually already past time and I think the sixers might be the a good example of that right now in that okay they made that calculated decision to not go all in on just this season with that larry move which is what that would have been it, it has did it ever end up uh Really getting confirmed whether Simmons was on the table in those Harden talks was it confirmed? Was it that Houston it's, just it's, said no?
1: No, it's confirmed. He, like, Simmons was on the table. Right. The Rockets wanted more than just Simmons and seemingly a lot more, right? And for like, by some accounts, we're just making unreasonable demands right. because Fertita basically refused to trade yeah. Harden to with, Philly
0: to, with Maury, yeah.
1: Um, like, I, they they made a good-faith effort to acquire Harden. Yeah, like, no, no, I think, you know, dragging them for not making that deal. No, no.
0: What, what I was going to say is whether, because I couldn't remember whether it was confirmed or not, what I was going to say is whether by their own fault or not, they might have already run out of time. You know, I think some of it, a lot of it is their own fault. Some of it out of their hands, you know, and the, and the Harden trade talks may be an example of that. But I just think this is another example of a team potentially now shifting into desperation mode and thinking now is the time, like, okay, it's like finally time, it's time to pounce. It's like now or never, but it's probably already past time. You know, that time might have been a few months ago. And they just didn't realize that because it's hard to realize that in the moment when you're the one seed. But
1: right. and the, Well, the problem with being in desperation mode is that you have no leverage. Like right. they're in a terrible negotiating position well, now. They're obviously going to try and shop Simmons, but he... They're shopping him at the absolute nadir yes. of his value. Yes.
0: They're shopping Ben Simmons at a point when people are editing Wikipedia pages so that Ben Simmons' name appears on the Guangdong Tigers <laughs> roster. That's not a joke. I was, that was done on Wikipedia. And uh, apologies if I'm uh, misplacing the Tigers. I believe it's the Guangdong Tigers. Am I correct? It is. It's the Guangdong Southern Tigers. My apologies. Um, but th- that's that's the point in time at which the... Sixers have now arrived at desperation mode, right? Um, and then look, in terms of Simmons, like, I don't, what more can we add to the discussion that hasn't been added already? Nothing. I, nothing. But what I can say, and I, I mentioned this in the text to you last night too, is look, you know me, and all of our listeners know me, okay? I am always down for a good old-fashioned post-mortem rant. This is coming from me, who called Paul George the Tin Man a few weeks ago Paul George, and we're going to talk about that. Oh, no, no, listen, Paul George. I, I'll say it right now. Paul George has completely, completely doused my face in clown makeup. I've already ordered the size 23 red shoes. Paul George has put those shoes on for me. Take nothing away from Paul George. He displayed 10 man tendencies early in this playoffs, completely destroyed that narrative with Kawhi. We will get to all that. So the point of this is to say that anyone who listens to this podcast knows I've got no problem going on those kind of rants, having fun with it. And also, like, whatever. I don't, if you end up being wrong, it's like, who cares? We're talking basketball, right? As long as you're not throwing wild, like, off court personal accusations, like, who cares? But even me legitimately felt uncomfortable with how shook Ben Simmons looked. Now, I'm not saying that's an excuse to not criticize him. He absolutely deserves criticism. He's a. Very, very high-paid professional basketball player, and we're only talking about his basketball right now. He deserves criticism, obviously. But, man, there's like Shook, and then there's what Ben Simmons was in this game and in this series, for the most part. Like, I legitimately found that uncomfortable to watch. His mannerisms, his expressions. I know you even mentioned you don't like to psychoanalyze players. We can't, obviously. We don't know what... But I'm just saying, just visually, like... Looking at him, his facial expression, his mannerisms, his body language when he got the ball, going to the free throw line, obviously the dunk that would have tied the game in a friggin' one possession game in the last couple minutes of, of a game seven that he passed up. Joel Embiid said on, after the game, he thought that was like the kind of breaking point of the game when they had an open dunk, I think he said, and they ended up with one made free throw out of it because... Simmons passed it to Theibel, who ended up getting fouled and got one free throw. So instead of getting an uncontested dunk to tie the game, they got one point out of it. It felt uncomfortable, man. Like, that's how shook Ben Simmons was on an NBA court last night. That's an all-star. That's an all-NBA player. That that just can't happen. And I don't know what the solution is. Perhaps the solution is just he needs a new environment. He needs a roster constructed um, around him that allows him to thrive. He probably should not be a point guard in the nba Uh, i think we can agree on that (laughs) um well he isn't one like no well this is he he thought he was he thought he was and the sixers thought he was
1: sure but at this point it's i've seen people being like well you know simmons is like not open to the idea of like playing the four or playing the five like he conceives of himself as a point guard it's like uh, that's not the position that you have been playing. Like if you found somebody who'd never watched a Sixers game before and just got them to tune into a Sixers playoff game, like you're telling me that they would think that Ben Simmons was playing point guard. Like every half court possession, he's he, he's drifting in the middle of the floor. He's standing in the dunker spot. He's standing on the perimeter doing nothing. Occasionally, you know, he's setting screens, but like,
0: that but that, what I'm saying is that's more of a recent development. Like there, there was a time and not that long ago when the ball was in Ben Simmons' hands a lot more, and he did look like just kind of a flawed point guard playing out of position.
1: It is a little strange that he, like he, he wasn't always this passive. Like I do think this was kind of like a new, a new low in terms of his passivity and just trepidation. I guess Dude, as he far as
0: passed up a dunk. To I know time we all we all saw in the final two dunk.
1: minutes. I guess the question I have about this now, and it, and it pertains to the Sixers and their offseason plans and what they're going to be able to do as far as ginning up a trade market for him and getting the kind of player that they need. What does another team look at Ben Simmons and see? Do they think that with uh, you know a better sort of developmental environment, uh, a supporting cast that makes sense, you, know, you pair him with a high level off the dribble creator? A lot of people have thrown out Portland, like what about a Simmons for McCollum swap? You know, like playing him next to Dame Lillard, having him actually play like a power forward. Set screens, dive hard to the rim, play his ass off on defense. Like, is that then unleashing him, you know, in this Draymond Green style role where he's a short roll passer and he's a a playmaker in the open floor and, you know, he's still like going to play some in the dunker spot and he can be effective in the dunker spot like i think that's that's slept on like it helps to have a guy who can leap like that standing in the dunker spot that can put pressure on the defense but like he's got to be more active and engaged in the offense i think to be uh, you know the kind of player who's actually raising a team's floor and rather you know as opposed to just being a liability like is is that environment is better coaching like is that going to help or is this sort of At least at the offensive end, this unsalvageable project because it's, you know, like obviously like the environment in Philly isn't right for him because he hasn't had a chance to play next to that player. It's all well and good to be like, no, Ben Simmons should just be like setting screens and rolling to the rim. He should be a short roll playmaker. He's not the guy who should be like initiating possessions. But in Philly, it's like, okay, so who is on the other end of those pick and rolls? Like who is initiating possessions if it isn't Simmons and who's getting him involved if he's not the one getting himself involved? And I think that's been a big part of the issue. But I mean, again, I I told you I don't like to psychoanalyze players, but I think as far as just watching him play, like it's clear the mentality is not where it needs to be. And And that's not just about him like trying to score the ball himself. It's like, he's not setting good screens. He's not rolling hard to the basket. Like he's taking himself out of games a lot of the time. And you got to put some of that on him. Like he can't Absolutely. just say it's the environment. It's the sure. roster. It's coaching. Like he has to wear that. So I- I'm very curious to see what his market looks like. What another team would look at him and see and believe that, that, they could turn him into or that he could not that they could turn him into but that he could become in a different environment like i have no idea how that's gonna go
0: yeah there's also just the possibility and i think i think it was jason maples who tweeted this earlier today i can't remember who it was and i saw it and and there were a lot of players and i'm not even saying this as necessarily a criticism because like people are different and we can you know as media as fans you might want a player to feel a certain way or to live and die with every game the way you do as a fan, but it's just not realistic to respect every single player to have the same mentality. He's generationally wealthy. He's one at life. He was so good at like at basketball that he got paid what he got paid and is generationally wealthy. Like it's very possible. He might not just care about working on or like, you know, reaching another level or being a, a player that people want to be like, he just might not care about that. He might be okay with who, and, I think like I feel like sometimes people I don't know if it's like they don't want to admit that 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 might just be the case with certain players or they, like you know what I mean like sometimes that is just the story and I, I don't know Ben Simmons I don't know if that's the case or not but I do think that sometimes like people have fans especially have to open themselves up to the possibility that that could just be the story this guy's really good at what he does got paid for it is in the best league in the world might be content with that i'm not saying you know we would feel that way if we were you know in high level competition i personally i don't think i could feel like that i'm ridiculously competitive i know you are in your own way as well you can't put yourself in that situation he might just be content with what he is and if that's the case like there's no changing him doesn't mean he's a bad person just means you know you probably don't as an nba team don't want to take up the percentage of the cap that he takes (laughs) up while trying to construct a championship roster.
1: Yeah, I mean every like every team's going to have their own kind of method of evaluation though and they'll yeah. do their due diligence and a character assessment like I'm sure any team that's thinking about acquiring him given what it would probably cost to get him th- there is going to be like a vetting process of some significance, you know? And I'm sure there will be a lot of disagreement within any front office that is thinking about acquiring him too. But it's also clear to me that there is still an extraordinary amount of ability there. Mm-hmm. He's still a you know six foot 10 Uber athlete who can handle the ball and can pass. And the decision-making isn't always tip top. The offensive limitations are severe and can be debilitating in a playoff setting. But, you know, I think that team acquiring him has got to be, has got to feel pretty confident that it has the offensive infrastructure to absorb him and to be able to live with his offensive limitations. If that team can find a way to turn him into like an offensive plus in the playoffs, I mean, that's fantastic. But I think you probably want to start from a point where you're like, okay, he's not necessarily going to like help our offense, but like, can we make it so that he's not crippling it? Can we put him in position to where like his defense can play up and he can stay on the floor because our offense is good enough to, you know, survive his lack of off ball gravity, his occasional passivity. Like that's, I think what, what needs to happen for any team acquiring him, which is why I think like the blazers do make mm-hmm. a lot of sense, but it gets complicated. Cause like, yeah, that's nice in theory, but then, okay, he's got to play next to use of Nurkic. And how does that work? Right. You know, it's like the, the the number of things that you have to have in order to make that partnership really sing is almost prohibitive. It's like you need him next to that high level on ball creator, but then you also kind of need him next to a stretch center given the
0: amount of qualifiers you just put out there, almost like a checklist of things a team would need or need to be confident in in acquiring Ben Simmons and, like, just all those qualifiers and needing him to be in a situation where he doesn't... or at least getting him to a point where he doesn't completely cripple your offense. Like, I know that there are very few, if any, actually perfect stars, but given the amount of concessions that need to be made when it comes to Ben Simmons, like, (laughs) fraud is perhaps strong, but... He, he might be an All NBA player in actuality. He literally basketball.
1: got named to the All NBA yes, team. That's what I'm saying. That, that, in
0: actuality, he's an All NBA player. Like th- literally, he is. But, but in terms not. of impact on the game of basketball, he's not, and we know that. Like, I'm sorry. Stole Kyle Lowry's spot. He's spot no, and, th- and that's why I said. Like, you know, I, I was saying maybe fraud is a is a harsh right. word, but I don't think it is. It, it in in NBA basketball star terms. Ben Simmons is a fraud. <laughs> uh,
1: I I don't. I mean like yeah? I don't like to use words like that, but that, that's why
0: I qualified uh, it as in NBA basketball star terms, not personally, not overall, professionally. He's a fugazi. Hey, you know what? You said that I didn't. For someone that doesn't <laughs> like to use those words, you think you think saying it in Italian makes it better? <laughs> we got we got fans in Italy.
1: Um, okay. So we've probably spent enough time talking about this. Do you have like a favorite Ben Simmons trade framework that you'd like to throw out? Because I definitely do.
0: I mean, I guess Portland, but just I was bouncing like, around with CJ a, straight up. Yeah, I was bouncing around with some like Dallas ideas.
1: That's interesting.
0: Yeah, but couldn't find one that like really, really popped. But. I mean, that,
1: yeah, Dallas has the ingredients for that too, right? With with Porzingis being able to like be the stretch five, obviously Luca, the primary ball handler. And, you know, you still sort of run into the issue of like, what do you do with Simmons when he's off ball? Right. I would hope that you could, you know, I guess not Rick Carlisle, whoever the next Mavericks coach turns out to be you know, can design some sets where you're making use of Simmons as a cutter because he is a good cutter, even Mm -hmm. though he just seemingly has like forgotten how to do it. Like if, if you kind of have, like imagine running a a Luca Porzingis pick and pop where Simmons is on the wing and the defense is sending like the wing defender to rotate up to Porzingis to take away the pick and pop three. And then Simmons is cutting from the slot. Like that's, that's just one sort of possible setup. Uh, of how the offense can work with those three guys, and then it's like the rest of the time you can also just have Porzingis as a spacer, yeah. and be running the pick and roll with Luca and Simmons. Yeah. Like, Luca's bringing two to the ball. Yeah. Simmons is catching the ball in a short roll, and the floor is spaced for him. Like that's that's pretty good. It is. I, I I'm sorry. I
0: just I do still find it funny that we're basically trying to play Twister here to find ways Ben Simmons can be consistently valuable all nba player ben simmons
1: no i know but the, the thing is that it's worth it no it because the talent like, is there i get it and, and because like he is one of the best defenders yep. defenders in the nba like the the best most versatile defensive players like that's it's worth it mm-hmm. especially for a team like dallas that's kind of stuck in purgatory right now and the other team my favorite destination indiana like a team that's stuck in oh purgatory, come on like,
0: man really this is,
1: is this think about it think about it okay um, I think so. It's a three-teamer in my wow, conception, okay. where Sabonis goes elsewhere because Simmons and Sabonis in the front court does not work. Yeah, Simmons and Miles Turner in the front court. Yes, can and does, or can and might work. <laughs> um, and so I think the the trade that I drew up was like Simmons and Terry Rozier going to Indiana, Sabonis going to the Hornets and then Brogdon and Jeremy Lamb and maybe Miles Bridges going to Philly.
0: I like it. I don't know if Philly takes that deal.
1: Really? Brogden and Miles Bridges. You don't think that I, I, I don't think they're doing much better than that. Oh no, no. I,
0: I didn't say Philly can do better
1: than that. Well, if they can't like, I, I legitimately don't think that they can go into next season with Ben Simmons on the roster.
0: Listen, man, they're backed into a corner. They're facing a mighty conundrum here. And there's no easy answers. But I do think they're at a point where they can't come into next season with Ben Simmons on the roster. They will not get anything near the return they want for Ben Simmons. And I'm not convinced they take the lowball offers that will be out there. And so you end up in this like, Merry go round, like round and round we go. Where I don't know where it stops. Where it stops, literally, no one knows. <laughs> but yeah, th- th- like that—that's how I would explain their Simmons conundrum.
1: Yeah, see, like the way that I see it going is like they're going to have an idea of the kind of player that they think they can get. You know, with with a Simmons trade, and depending on where they actually value him or where they see his market. As being or or where they think his market should be, they'll either quickly get a deal done or they will quickly be disabused of whatever notion they have, what Simmons value league wide actually is. And eventually will have to lower their asking price and take a deal that maybe they didn't think they would have to take, take you know, at the start of the offseason. But like, I don't think it's just going to be like, well, we're drawing a hard line. This isn't good enough. And they go into next season with Ben Simmons on the roster because, man, you've got Joel Embiid, like, taking pot shots at this dude after losing a heartbreaking Game 7. Like, it's unsalvageable at this point. I, re- I really believe that. And I've been a guy who said, like, these guys are still young. The Sixers have destroyed teams with both of them on the floor in the regular season. It can still work. Just put the right pieces around them. Like, give it time. I wouldn't be opposed to it to a trade, to breaking them up. But like, I don't think you necessarily have to jump the gun right now. Like I've said that and I don't believe that anymore. Like it's, they, they have to do something this offseason. Has,
0: way. has Ben Simmons put the clown makeup
1: on you, Joe Wolf on. <laughs> has he turned me into the Joker or <laughs>
0: <laughs> have you also ordered the size 23 red shoes that I have ordered <laughs> for this p- after the, the incredible work Paul done? Okay. Can I, but let's, Unless you have much more to say about the Sixers, Ben Simmons, Ox, any of these, let's end on this question. Over under 1.5 seasons remaining in Philadelphia for Joel Embiid.
1: I like <sighs> over under 1.5. 1. 1.5 5. 1. 5 seasons remaining in Philadelphia for Joel Embiid. I'm going to say over... Because I do believe that somehow, some way this front office is going to make a swing for the fences deal, that is enough to, I mean, maybe it's only enough to get him to like extend for two years on top of his current contract, but I do think he legitimately loves Philadelphia. Agreed. And, you know, we haven't gotten any indication yet that like he is thinking about forcing the front office's hand, like pushing his way out. I think we're not at that point yet. And I, I, I do think that the front office will ultimately do enough to stave that off for at least a couple years.
0: I'm also going over by half a season. I think he's got two seasons left, which is I believe the remainder of his contract.
1: It is. Yes. Yeah.
0: So I agree with you that I, I believe they will find the deal that at least keeps him... Confident enough in his ability to contend in Philly for the remainder of his contract, and then I think all bets are off at that point.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we've probably spent enough time. Yeah. On this on this subject, um, I don't know. Do you have like I haven't really had enough time. I don't think to like fully conceptualize Bucks Hawks, but you are, I? just sort of knee jerk prediction. I would say Bucks and six. I think that's a pretty solid pick. That's probably what I would go to.
0: I think like talent-wise, advantages-wise, it should be Bucks in 5 or less, but I think uh the Hawks throughout the season, throughout this playoff run have like just earn enough respect and like resiliency points, I think that it would almost be naive at this point to just be like, "Okay, well, talent-wise they're outmatched. This is going to be a short series." I I think they'll find a way. And honestly, Trey Trey has been the type of star in these playoffs that it's like, you know what? you are got to give that guy probably like a game and a half or two games in this series.
1: Yeah, and not only that, I do think matchup-wise, like this is a tricky one for Milwaukee. Capella on Giannis? The, well, there's that. And I, I think it's it's sort of the same question that, you know, going into like the Knicks series, for instance. Obviously, like Giannis is you know, leagues beyond Julius Randle, but it's like, okay, do you want to burn Capella as the primary on Giannis? Or, I mean, this would be, I think, a lot easier if Hunter was healthy. Like you have, the, yeah. you know, you have Hunter at the point of attack to kind of be that first bit of sludge to slow Giannis down. And then you have Capella waiting for him on the back line. Like, I think that is the kind of ideal setup to slow down Giannis. If they don't have Hunter then yeah, I think it's probably got to be Capella as the primary. And you look, but most of the time, some of the time you can get away with sticking a smaller player on Brooke Lopez. But like, I think he's done a really good job in these playoffs of taking advantage of size mismatches, uh, whether that's, you know, scoring inside, getting offensive rebounds, like Brooke Lopez has been good. He and was awesome
0: in that Brooklyn series, man. And you called it in, in your uh, pre-series post.
1: Yeah. And like, I didn't, you know, necessarily know how it was going to go. I think that it goes a lot differently, obviously, if if Kyrie and Harden are healthy and they can put that kind of pressure on him in the pick and roll. Like, that really changed things, obviously. But he more than held his own at the defensive end of the floor. He was honestly pretty terrific for the most part defensively. And then offensively, again, I think he was able just enough to take advantage of those size mismatches where, you know, he, he was able to hurt the Nets for, trying to slot their center onto Giannis and leaving a smaller player on him. So uh, interested to see whether he can do that again against the Hawks. I mean, is Hunter done? Like, is that confirmed? He's out for the playoffs. Uh, yeah, or? I think
0: he's done for the season. I'm pretty sure. Yeah.
1: I think Capella can do like, I think he's game. Like he'll be a good, a good Giannis primary. And then the Hawks kind of have the above the break shooters that I feel like can punish the bucks defensive scheme. So, it's, it's not an easy matchup for Milwaukee by any means, but I just think overall they're better. I think Holiday on Trey could cause him some issues. And it's past the point where I'm like, okay, Trey's going to get shut down or like... Because even when he's not scoring, I think he has proved that his drive game, his playmaking, like his ability to kind of collapse a defense even if he's not scoring efficiently, is still going to prove invaluable and still give like the Hawks a chance. But I think, I don't know, man. I, I feel like the the rest of those guys might have a trickier time scoring than they had in like the previous two series. I feel like there are like fewer weak spots to pick on in the Bucks rotation than there were like, even though like the Sixers are probably overall better defensive team than Milwaukee like because of their offensive limitations like they were still forced to play guys like Seth Curry and Furkan Korkmaz like big minutes and i think Atlanta made a lot of hay attacking those guys whereas like you know the bucks don't necessarily have to play Bryn Forbes I was big gonna minutes say, you know other than
0: Forbes really who do you even like they don't really have a, a defensive zero out there
1: No, like, Connaughton is probably a slight defensive minus, but I don't worry about him that much, about, like, just getting bulldozed or, like, getting blown past. Like, he's fine. Obviously, like, KD cooked Connaughton when he went at him on switches, but, like, Trey Young's not Kevin Durant. So, I I just have a lot more faith in Milwaukee's ability to score in that matchup, I think, uh, than I do in Atlanta. What's up,
0: Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. I was saying it when, before game 6, that if the box could you know, find a way to get out, like come back from three, two down and win that series, that everything is coming up Milwaukee. When you look around the league at the guys who are out of lineups right now, uh, the way the bracket broke in the end and who's left the injuries Brooklyn got, which look, I mean, it's part of the game. You need those bounces to go your way in a championship quest. I'm not saying I pick Milwaukee out of the four remaining, but I think everything has come up Milwaukee right now. And it's like, this is their moment, man. Like really, this is their moment.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you just like never know when you're going to get another opportunity like this. And Brooklyn is out of the way. Either of those teams coming out of the West would be a formidable finals opponent. But yeah, I, I certainly think the Bucks can talk themselves into being like the favorite from here on out. I would probably lean Phoenix as the favorite at this point. But like, yeah, Milwaukee is right there. And I think they got to stay out of their own way, mm-hmm. which. They haven't always been able no to guarantee, but I want to say, you know, like I don't necessarily feel like I learned a ton about the Bucks in that series win over Brooklyn. I've said before, I think you know, like healthy Brooklyn takes care of that in five games. At the same time, that was impressive, man. For Durant to be playing at the level that he was playing at, for them to have sort of taken that punch gone down three two, had some of their old like postseason demons resurface and then to kind of collect themselves to make some necessary adjustments and to play the way they played in game six and seven to take that series i'm tipping my hat to milwaukee like that's a great series win and like qualifiers are not caveats are not like they deserve it like i, I don't like, I'm not here for people tearing them down or calling them frauds or saying that, like, whatever, they got lucky. Like, yeah, they got lucky. Every every team every year gets lucky in some way, shape, or form. And Kyrie and Harden both getting injured is, like, more luck than most teams can expect in a playoff series against a team of Brooklyn's caliber. But, like, the Bucks still had to win that series, and they had to win the series against a guy who's playing better than anybody on the face of the earth right now. And... Giannis acknowledged that Kevin Durant was playing better than anybody on the face of the earth. And then, you know what he did? He went out and outplayed him in game six and practically went toe to toe with him in game seven played like that's the single biggest game of Giannis Antetokounmpo's career. And he was extraordinary.
0: Again, you're speaking of someone who's clowned the box as much as anyone has for the last couple of years. And I even said Saturday night that uh, I don't really want to hear any of the like got lucky. St- like, Every champion that has come along in this league, in any sport, has needed bounces, injury whatever the case may be. Did they beat a fully healthy Nets team? Obviously not. Did they still have to come up big to eke out a a Game 7 win after being down 2-0, after being down 3-2? Did they still play their guts out to earn it? Yes, and you cannot take that away from them. And like, yo, Game 7, especially... Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton struggled for the majority of that game. Uh, defensively, I thought Drew was great throughout, even, even Middleton, but Giannis was, as you mentioned, it was the game of it was the biggest game of his career. Um, it was overshadowed, you know, be, just because of what Kevin Durant was doing, and because it's Kevin Durant, and because, you know, doing that as like a shot maker is always going to get um, it's more aesthetically pleasing. It's going to get uh the attention. But The gargantuan effort that Giannis put up that night is why Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton, and all the credit to them for coming up big late, but it's why they had a chance to still come up big late despite struggling early, because Giannis carried that team almost by himself, especially offensively, for the majority of that game. And then, hey, full credit to Drew and Chris for coming up clutch down the stretch. And Drew, and what I'll say about Drew Holiday is that I know there's been like a lot of jokes about him essentially turning into Eric Bledsoe for parts of that series. And like, you know, the the the, the Bucs had got him to, you know, upgrade from that and to kind of be a different playoff team. But I think the way that game seven ended and what Drew did down the stretch is exactly why you got Drew Holiday. And it's like, yo, know, the Bucks, who have the Bucks had in recent years? I guess other than maybe Middleton who could have had the shooting night Drew Holiday was having, and honestly, the series Drew Holiday was having offensively, but still be a good enough player and still know that you're a good enough player to still go for it down the stretch. And I think, again, that's part of it with like why they went and got Drew Holiday and, and, and all that stuff. So there have been plenty of reasons to clown the Bucks over the years, including in this series that they just won. But do not take away from them winning that series. They played their guts out to do it. You watch freaking P.J. Tucker in that like. If you're not inspired watching P.J. Tucker defend in that series and work his ass off in that series, like I, I don't know what to tell you. That dude
1: is a 16-game player. Yes. Even with the Nets injuries, I feel like they win that series in five if not for P.J. Tucker.
0: I can't argue that. And, and the thing I was going to say is the shame of it is is that I agree with you that P.J. Tucker is a 16 game player but the shame of it is is because so much of his value is tied up in guarding these like generation whether it's LeBron for all the years he had to guard him or um, KD you know over the years or whoever else P.J. Tucker has to guard it's like you'll look at his numbers and you'll look at the performances some all-time greats have had with P.J. Tucker as the primary defender on him because that's the assignment he draws and you maybe wouldn't think that he's a 16 game but it's like yo if you if you have watched PJ Tucker in the playoffs over the years and come away with anything but the opinion that he's a 16 game player and an absolute gamer i do not know
1: what to tell you not only that but i'm pretty sure his like playoff three point percentage is something in the realm of like 42 43% like <laughs> he, he actually shoots the ball really well in the playoffs consistently and it's not like you're not asking him to do a ton offensively, but what he does, which is knock down the occasional corner three and crash the hell out of the offensive glass can still be really valuable. And then like more than enough to keep him on the floor so that his defense has a chance to play. And KD still got his in that series, but Tucker made him work for pretty much everything. And that's another reason why I thought it was like the conversation about putting Giannis on KD was so misguided. It's like, I don't know that anybody really could have done a better job than PJ did in that series. And you just, you know, take my hat off to him as well, man. Like that was, mm-hmm. that was really awesome to watch. And I, you know, that was a move at the time that I think a lot of people were split on. Like I whether, it. whether I liked it too, but I, I wasn't like over the moon. I wasn't like, this is a home run for the bucks. I thought it was a worthwhile swing. And it, it proved to be like very much the right move for this team. And on on top of you know, the just the individual defense on KD, I think as good as Brooke Lopez was in that series, there were moments where he was getting carved up in pick and roll, and the bucks decided to keep him on the bench, go with Giannis at the five, especially in that game six. Their switching in that game was awesome. Like I think the best that I've ever seen them switch and it wasn't just about like they were switching everything and they were closing off the gaps. The nets weren't getting slips. Like it was also when, when they would switch into a matchup they didn't want, they were really good about scramming that matchup out like right away. And PJ was kind of at the forefront of that. Like anytime Connaughton got switched onto KD, I feel like Tucker was there ready to scram him out.
0: That game six that the bucks won to avoid elimination the first time. Was maybe the most complete playoff performance I've seen the Bucks put together this this iteration of the, you know like the Giannis era Bucks, and I know they went up you know two nothing in a conference finals against Toronto two years ago, so they've won technically bigger games, but to me that game six, uh, the switching, the Giannis at the five, the uh, the way Bud tightened his rotation. Giannis didn't take a single three pointer and just like cooked where he can cook like it was about as flawless as this Bucks team could play. And it's why their season remained intact going into a game seven back in Brooklyn.
1: Yeah. And I'd say like there's still definitely questions about the offensive cool. process, but yeah. they they won that series at the defensive end of the floor. So yeah.
0: questions still exist. Like I'd consider firing Holzer if they won the championship.
1: <laughs> I man, I like look, I, I think Bud's been fine. Like you know, maybe there there are things that he hasn't done that he could be doing, but like I think he's made pretty much the the adjustments that he's needed to make, and I, I think he's been like like good even so far this postseason. Um, and, and as far as like the net side of things, I I really don't think there's like a lot to say. Like Durant is a monster. Uh, I said this during that game seven, but like the way that he was defending. In the overtime of that game. We're talking. He didn't sit. Okay. Again. We're talking. 50 plus minutes into this game. He is defending his ass off. Despite. Soaking up more than 40 offensive possessions. At the other end of the floor. It was nuts. Like. You know. Coming back from. From. Like basically the worst injury that you can suffer. In sports. For him to do that. That. And I know, like you know, he he winds up airballing the last shot, and it's just like devastating. Like I, I, I'm not even like the biggest KD fan, but like I was so gutted for him in that Same. moment. Yeah, because of that, everything that he put into that series. Like,
0: I'm surprised they milked that possession. Look, like it's. I, I think we're far beyond questioning KD given the performance he had and the shot he had already hit in that game. And I don't even, like, I know some people are saying, oh, Nash should have called timeout. I don't actually think he should have. I think, you know, the ball was in KD. Once the ball got to KD's net, you let KD do what he does. I'm just surprised that Brooklyn milked that possession as if it was a tie game. And they were like, okay, well, worst case, there's a second overtime coming. They milked it that way. And that's what shocked me. And I just wonder if it was at that point being so drained and so fatigued. It was essentially like, we're going to hold for this. We're either going to tie it or win it on this possession. And if not, well, gave it a good shot. Like...
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good question. Like would it have made a difference if they'd called the timeout? Like then you kind of give Milwaukee a chance to set their defense. Like they had holiday on Durant on that possession, which is like still not a terrible matchup for Milwaukee, but it's not necessarily the one they would prefer. Right. I think they would rather have Tucker on him and uh, you know, maybe, maybe that helps Milwaukee. They, they can kind of deny him the ball. Like they can draw something up to, uh, to blitz him, to get it out of his hands. But like, just for the sake of like maybe giving Katie a breather before having to take that shot, it, it might have helped. Um, and then obviously, like, the, first of all, the shot that he hit to send it into overtime, the, the, the very tip of his toe on his size 18, 18 and a half shoes, like uh, just grazing the three point line. And it was that close to, as he said, his big ass feet uh, got in the way of him ending the Bucs season on that shot, which would have been, I mean, that would have been an all-timer.
0: And as many people have pointed out, I don't remember if it was a Tom Haber's I can't remember who wrote it for ESPN when they wrote that Chris story. Herring. Chris Herring wrote the story about why Kevin Durant falls down so much, or sorry, not why, why he keeps losing his shoe. And yeah. in that story, it was revealed that Kevin Durant wears a full size bigger than he actually needs to. So <sighs> them's the breaks, man. Like game of, uh, it might've even been you. Someone tweeted it that night, game of millimeters instead of game of inches. Was it you? Was it someone else? It wasn't I me, remember. but... These tweets all blur together for me, um, <laughs> but yeah, Game of Millimeters, man. Like, it's the beauty and the cruelty of sports that yeah. all-time performances, you can leave it all out there, like, and sometimes you come up short, and in the grand scheme of things, statistically speaking, you're almost certainly going to come up short at some point, you know? Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but... Hey, NBA, one out of 30 teams. I've said this before, but the playoffs are great. But the cruelty of it is that the point of it really is to crown one champion and expose 15 losers who join 14 others. Like, you know what I mean? It's it's great, but at the end of the day, there's 29 losers. And so like, you know, that KD shot, the perfect example. It's like, man, he hits this great shot, but, you know, millimeters away and it could have been a completely different story. And then, you know, he airballs it in the end. And like, that's his final, like, think of what KD did in that series. His final act in that was an air ball, right? Like, come on.
1: (laughs) And and like, you can look at the flip side of it and say, like, it's, it's just another reason to always apply context when we talk about this stuff because I would hope that people would still have recognized that as like one of the biggest, most important games of Giannis Antetokounmpo's career. Even if Kevin Durant's shoes had been size 17 and a half like the size they're supposed to be spoiler alert they they wouldn't have i know and it's it's upsetting because like he played his absolute guts out in that game and i think you know even if they had lost i should have proven to anybody that like he absolutely has the juice but i think a a lot of people would have taken that as like a colossal failure and all it would have taken was durant you know being, like, a couple millimeters further back, being behind the three-point line, and, like, that's it. But instead, it's, you know, this crowning achievement, and people want to talk about how it's kind of like a legacy-making win for Giannis, which I guess it is. But I think it could have been, you know, a legacy-making loss, too, in its own way. But I don't think a lot of people would have seen it that way. And, and like, to that same point, and I, I don't want to, like, build a straw man here, and I feel like in saying this, I'm talking to... Like a, a probably a very small slice of mouth breathing NBA media, and like hopefully not a, a large contingent of our listenership. But anybody clowning James Harden for his performance in that game seven,
0: I will fight. I'll legitimately fight you.
1: Is an imbecile. Yes. Like, please get out of my face with that. This dude was playing on an injury that ought to have kept him out for a month. And what did he miss? Like eight, nine days in the end. Comes back completely cold, having not had really any basketball activity whatsoever. Guts it out for, you know, 46 minutes in game five, 40 minutes in game six, and then another 48 or 50 minutes in game seven. Gave the Nets all he possibly could. Struggled. Was like maybe, you know, 40% as effective as he would have been healthy. But gave them everything that he could give them, and I, I'm seeing people use this as evidence that, like, he's a playoff choker. That James Harden in Game Seven is bound to disappoint. Like, come on! Like,
0: as the gatekeeper for clowns and fugazes, <laughs> and for when the distinction is called for and when it is not. Part of that responsibility comes with you. You need you need to be able. To recognize when it's appropriate and when it's not, and losing is not it. If you watch that Bucks Nets game seven, or even game six, you watch that series unfold and and watch game seven unfold. If you were thinking like this, this scoreline hold, if the Bucks end up on the wrong side of this, it's slander Giannis time. Nah, like y- you need to, you need to understand when and where to use. You know whether it's clown, Fugazi, fraud, uh, lose, like whatever the case may be, it it can't just be a win or lose thing. Because I got news for you, most people are going to end up losers in the end. Okay, you need to understand that, that. That that's what I'll say about that.
1: To that end, are you are you ready to recant from your position uh, that
0: I know where we're going? Okay,
1: that Giannis the loyal. Oh loser, no, that's
0: not where I thought we were going. Sorry, no, I oh, still oh, don't. don't, don't like, wait, I still we'll, don't we'll, like it. Wait, I still don't like it. I told you that on Twitter that night. I don't. I still don't like it, man. I said that to you even when we spoke about it on last episode. And you said, if if they win game six and seven. And I said, no, it doesn't change my stance. If at the end of the series, even after beating him, if you honestly have been like, damn, man, he's playing like the best, or like, we just beat the best player in the world. Mm-hmm. I still feel weird about in the middle of a tense battle after just losing. You're like, I still feel weird about saying, well, he's the best in the world. It's like. Okay, what about,
1: you know, when PJ Tucker after game six was talking about how. KD was the best scorer he's ever seen, how he remembered, you know, being, talking to, uh, I can't remember who it was, like whether it was like a coach or a recruiter, about KD when he was like a junior in high school saying that he was going to be the best player ever. Like, when he was saying all that after game six and there was still a game to be played in the series. But Do you have an issue with that? I didn't
0: because there was a different tone to it and also like he was specifically talking about KD as a scorer. Like, I, I, he didn't, PJ didn't come out and say, Kevin Rand's the best in the world. Like, I'm, I'm sure from your point of view, it, no, it's fine. I, I, it. I
1: appreciate and respect you sticking to your guns.
0: And again, as I said at the time, it doesn't like. And I said it then. Like, it doesn't mean oh, they're cooked. They're not going to win the series because he said that. That's not what I was saying. I just, in the heat of battle, I just still think it's crazy that a, an MVP level superstar himself made that comment about a player on the opposing team.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't have an issue with it at the time, and I think. It, <laughs> In hindsight, it just looks even more badass. Cause fair, fair enough, man, fair enough. It's As like, you said,
0: he outdueled him in game six, and he survived him in game seven.
1: Like that's what I mean. So now it's like you you have just sort of labeled this guy the best in the world, and you've gone out and essentially beaten him. You know, like that's that's pretty cool. I
0: think. You know, I would have admitted it was cool now if after game seven, Giannis came out and said, I am now officially the best in the world. Because then I would have been like, you know what? Amazing. He lined this up perfectly. He purposely did it to set himself up. It was like LeBron. Um,
1: that said, right there made me the greatest of all time.
0: Yeah. It's like LeBron say, but even coming into the play, who did LeBron say was the MVP? Um, Chris Paul? No. What, remember, who did LeBron say at the beginning? Oh, no, so he said Curry was the MVP before their playing game. And we were saying, well, he's just saying that so that he can set it up. So that if the Lakers go on a run, LeBron can say, okay, I beat this guy. I beat that, you know, should be MVP. So if Giannis was doing that to set it up, so then he can be like, I took down the best player in the world, then I'd chef's kiss. Love it. But if he was earnestly saying it, I still, I, I'm not a fan of that.
1: Well, maybe he's not saying it publicly. He just, he just slipped that one to Jay Williams. <laughs> hoping that eventually he'll out it now
0: okay get to what i thought you were gonna get to you clown me for what i you can clown me for
1: well i just think look we've we've buried the lead you know an hour into this podcast yeah. but the los angeles clippers this mm-hmm. is the first time that this has ever been uttered yeah in history i don't know if i'm the first person to utter it but this is the first moment in time in which anybody has been able to say this, the Los Angeles Clippers are in the Western Conference Finals. And they got there with two consecutive wins over a really good Utah Jazz team without Kawhi Leonard. And I think you know what that means. It's time for us to sing my favorite song, (laughs) The Ballad of a Tin Man. (laughs) Because Paul George... Absolutely went off in dragging the Los Angeles Clippers to the conference finals. He was so spectacular. And even in that game one against Phoenix, I mean, like he, he struggled a bit, I think, down the stretch. But like this dude has answered every question, dispelled every doubt. Like there's nothing like it it lined up perfectly for him to do this. Right. Like Kawhi goes down. And I think a lot of people, myself included, like I was burying the Clippers and I'm like among the bigger Clippers believers that I know from his jump shooting to his playmaking to his power drives to the rim and like the relentlessness with which he's been attacking the basket. And you know, the defense isn't quite where it once was, but like he can still crank it up at that end of the floor. Um, I'm so goddamn impressed with what he has done this postseason, and think we ought to give him his flowers.
0: No qualms about giving Paul George his flowers right now. So before I, and I'm not at all trying to take away from the fact Paul George proved me wrong. We obviously have to shout out uh, Terrence Mann and Reggie hmm. Jackson. Holy Reggie Jackson for the playoffs, for the series, like has been phenomenal. Okay, this was not just like a one game wonder. Terrence Mann, just like what he did. In that game six, like, look, unlikely playoff heroes emerge all the time. I mean, we were just talking about Kevin Herter freaking sending the Sixers packing in a game seven, but like, like, think about the Clippers teams that couldn't get over the hump, right? Whether because they were flawed, fraudulent, whatever, the, bad luck, things happen in the playoffs. You know, I just, we just talked about how it, most people lose. It's hard to win. And Think of some of the great Clippers teams, even for a sad sack franchise, they've had some great teams that could not get over the hump. The Lob City era Clippers. That Clippers team that friggin' beat the Spurs in that seven-gate epic, lost in the next round. The, the Josh Smith game that they lost and, and blew a 3-1 series lead there. Then they team up Kawhi and friggin' PG, go up 3-1 in the bubble and lose to a Nuggets team that, you know, great team, but nowhere, should not have been in that series after that game four. Like, and then Paul, uh, Kawhi gets hurt this year. In a essentially a best of three series at that point against the one seed, and they end up finally breaking through and getting over that hump, thanks in large part to Terrence Mann in games in a closeout game, and Reggie Jackson. So first of all, okay, giving those guys their slide. Now back to Paul George. (laughs) Yes, there is nothing to say, except for the fact that he came up huge. He put together a string of basketball that is still going on, as you mentioned. They, they lost to the Suns, but I don't think Paul George could have done anything more in game one. He was great. He's been great now consistently for many games in a row. And he is playing like the caliber of superstar that talent-wise, ability-wise, I have never denied that he is, and that we all know that he is. And even when I went on my rant about him being the Tin Man, if you recall, I even said in that rant, that it actually like frustrated me, bothered me, boggled my mind, because this was not a notorious playoff choker. This was a guy who early in his career, as he rose to stardom, was a big time playoff player. 2016 first round loss to the Raptors, which this was like, what, a year and a half, two years, after suffering one of the most gruesome leg injuries we've ever seen a basketball player suffer. He was back on the court, not just playing, but playing at a level where he almost single-handedly Stole that series from a Raptors team that was way better than that Pacers team. Okay. So the thing that boggled my mind with what Paul George had turned into, like in the last, and I had made the joke during that rant that it was like he summoned some bad karma after saying Dame shot to eliminate the Thunder was a bad shot. Cause it was like basically since. Which he's since recanted by the way. No, I know. I know. But I'm saying like up until that point, I, first of all, big Paul George supporter thought he was a great big, like big game player, playoff performer. I don't know what happened. Between that, I don't know if maybe it was as simple as he teamed up with Kawhi. You know, I mentioned self awareness is good. He understood. Yeah, I'm I'm great. I'm Paul George, but I'm not Kawhi Leonard. And there was a little bit of deferring. He definitely, as his career has gone on, has become a much more uh jump shot reliant player. You know, the drives have gone down. He hasn't been maybe as forceful as a, or as aggressive as we wanted him to be, despite the fact that he is a great shooter. But for whatever reason, like last year's playoffs, even when they won, you know, obviously down the stretch against the Nuggets. And early in this playoffs, like, there was there was just, like, something there where even, look, he had games where he was great defensively. I acknowledge even someone in those some of those Tin Man games where he was great defensively and actually was playing really well as a playmaker. But there was parts, like, late in games and crunch time, even early against the Mavs, where he looked like he didn't want any part of, I don't know, being on the spot in those moments. There was a game, I don't even remember what game it was now, like, against the Mavericks, or was it early in the Jazz series? Everything's blending together, where he got a great look to either tie or take the lead like late in the game and passed it off to Kawhi, who, and I even tweeted out the screen grab at the time when he passed the ball to Kawhi, Kawhi was in the middle of like getting up from stumbling and literally had his back turned, And this was the game on the line. And that was the kind of stuff that like i just couldn't understand that because the way i saw it I was like yo you're paul george we know what you can do you have to know what you can do how are you not taking that shot i understand you're playing with a great player but like you're great too you know it was it was almost more troubling than the ben simmons stuff because with ben simmons we, we he's shook because he can't shoot he knows he can't do certain things paul george the thing like and that's why i got with the whole tin man stuff I was like does this guy just not have like the heart the hunger like is he just like not interested in being that guy anymore. Maybe he likes being second banana to Kawhi. I don't know. But point is Kawhi went down and Paul George, who had been playing great in a lot of other areas and his shooting was kind of coming and going throughout this playoffs, got back to being Paul George, world destroyer, all world destroyer, every facet of the game with Kawhi out and was the best player on the court. And it was not even goddamn close in those last two games, played well enough that the Clippers could have won game one if some other things had broken their way, obviously, in the Western Conference Finals. So, long way of saying, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, Paul George has put the clown makeup on for me. I've ordered the size 23 red shoes. I'm gladly accepting my Clown of the Week honors for what Paul George has done in these playoffs. I recant. Woo! The Tin Man moniker, the Tin Man, I won't even say has grown a heart because there was one there way back when and he kind of temporarily lost it. The Tin Man has regained his heart. The Tin Man's heart turns out is actually like a human liver that can regenerate (laughs) and regrow itself and it's back. Paul George, no longer a Tin Man. On God, if this guy flops down the stretch of this Western Conference Finals and I ended up going on this cell phoning rant, I will be so mad, but I believe in you now, Paul George. All I ask is that you be the Paul George we all know you can be. Because well, news newsflash, newsflash. If Paul George is that guy, especially when Kawhi is back in the lineup, yes. the Clippers have an inside track to clear-cut title contention does not even describe it, okay? If Paul George is at his best, this is most likely the best team in basketball and will be as long as he and Kawhi are healthy together. So that that's all I'm saying. Paul George, be Paul George. He's too good in my opinion. Not even in my opinion, He's too good flat out. We know this. He's too good to be the type of player where we're saying, okay, like he, he wasn't the offensive force. We, he could have been tonight, but you know, his defense was great. His playmaking was like once in a while that happens to even great players. But Paul George is way too good of a player for that to be a consistent thing in the playoffs. You know what I mean? Like, He's just too good for that. So
1: be Paul Jordan. Yeah. I mean, I just like never really thought that it was a consistent thing in the playoffs. Like I, I, I feel like it was last year and that was it. Like you even mentioned like that, that, that series in 2018, 19, when Dame hit the shot to send them oh, home, like he was great for OKC in that series. He was. So it was I'm really just was, last I'm saying it was after that. Yeah. Yeah. It
0: was after that and early in the But that's one series. playoff run. No, I, I know. I know that again. I, I, I didn't say it was like a five-year thing here. I, I don't know. Like is Kawhi coming back? Well, well we don't know, like, they they're, they're seem to be making it seem like it, it's like a game-to-game thing, but I wonder, especially based on the Shams report that it was maybe an ACL issue, that I wonder if, like, the Clippers, as an organization, as a team, his teammates, maybe already know that he's mm-hmm. done for, like, they know that they don't have him, and for gamesmanship purposes, the Clippers aren't going to admit that, I could be completely wrong, that's right, just kind right. of the vibe I'm getting based on the way things are unfolding, and the report that it was an ACL issue.
1: That's sort of my feeling about it too. It's like, yeah. yeah, maybe don't say that publicly. Maybe make it so that like the Suns still kind of have to prepare for the possibility that he's going to be back. But I, it's really a shame because this could be such an incredible conference final if both teams were healthy. And it does sound like Chris Paul's probably going to be back pretty soon, which is great news. But I would really love to see the Clippers get to take a swing at the Suns team with a healthy Kawhi. And without him, I just... For all the things you mentioned, as great as Paul George has been, as much as their other guys have stepped up, and oh my God, like... I did not expect for them to finally find the point guard that they've been looking for, and for that to be Reggie Jackson. Like, in that Jazz series, it wasn't just the jump shooting, which has been good pretty much all year long. The North-South juice... Like, get into the basket, collapse in the defense. I mean, there were a couple of possessions in the fourth quarter of that game six where it's like, I don't even remember who was guarding him, whether it was Conley or Mitchell, but left to right crossover explodes into the lane, right at Gobert at the rim, into the body, finishes over him multiple times. Unbelievable, man. Like, good for Reggie Jackson. Because, yeah, yeah,
0: 100%. Also, yo, like, and I know, again, like for the most part, we don't know these guys personally. All I can say is in my deal, in my few dealings with Reggie Jackson, locker room stuff, also just good dude. And I, again, I don't want to be the guy who says, well, he's good to the media, so good on him. Cause there's plenty of guys that are good with the media or whatever and are jackasses or mm-hmm. do terrible things off the court. So I'm not saying that. But I, I always go back to, and I, Don't remember who wrote the story, but I think you remember what I'm talking about like a few years ago with someone wrote about like the tension in the Thunder dressing room and they mentioned a moment where Russ, in one of his moods, was being kind of a jerk to the media for no real reason. And I can't remember if it was like a media member went to like, just like went to sit down while waiting for a player or something and Russ got mad because they were sitting in like the, you know, a player's area. And so the media person got up and then Reggie Jackson like moved some stuff. there so that the guy could sit beside him or And Russ was like mad at Reggie Jackson for doing that. And it, again, it's just like one of those things. I, I, I'm not saying, you know, how a player treats the media is indicative of who they are as human beings, but there's been a lot of things like that with Reggie Jackson and even in my dealings with him in lockers, where he seems like just a genuinely good dude. And uh, one of those guys who like, you're really happy to see surprisingly succeed in the way he has succeeded. And you go down in Clippers lore, if that exists, you know? <laughs> like it as, might now. It, as one of the guys that, friggin' push this team to places they have never been with far greater talents before.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, it's, it's been pretty cool to watch his, his come up in this uh, postseason, And obviously Terrence, man, I mean that game six just out of this world, but w- without Kawhi and with Chris Paul coming back, honestly, even if, if Chris Paul was out for the series, I would probably still give the edge to the Clippers, but with Chris Paul coming back and Kawhi probably being out for the series, I just think it's, it's, it's like too much to overcome, but maybe not. I don't know. What do you, like, where do you see the series going? I guess after that game one, if
0: Kawhi's out as, ex- as I expect he will be. And Chris Paul, it sounds like he's going to come back in the next game or two. Honestly, man, like I could see it as like sons and five.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's just like, they're, they they just have a little bit more firepower right now. And
0: if I, if Kawhi's healthy and PG is PG and everything I've said about him in the last ten minutes, I think the Clippers win the championship. I agree. No Kawhi, especially with Chris Paul coming back at some point in the series. Yeah, I'd say Sun's in five, maybe six, if you know the Clippers catch some lightning in a bottle again. But I, yeah, I think well, now, like, the, it, I now I think now the task is too tall to overcome without Kawhi.
1: Yeah, it does feel that way, and it just feels like as much as, you know, they've gotten these big performances out of Reggie Jackson, out of Terrence Mann, out of Nick Batum. I mean, we haven't talked about him a lot, but Nick Batum has been so, so good. And when they run that small ball lineup, like, I think more than basically anybody, it's been his defense that has actually made it work. Like, he's usually the one who's providing the rim protection for them, which is... You know, in the past, I never really think of Nick Batum as a rim protector, but man, has he been good. Whether it's him, whether it's Reggie, whether it's Marcus Morris, like they've gotten these huge games. Like they've always been able to rely on somebody else stepping up and just giving them a huge performance to complement, you know, what they're getting from Kawhi slash PG or ideally Kawhi and PG. But I think now like against this Suns team, Without Kawhi, it's like they need PG to be every bit as good as he was in game one and like throughout that Jazz series. And then they also need to be getting probably like at least two monumental role player performances every single game. And I just feel like that's probably too much to ask for. Credit to the Suns, you know, because Devin Booker played one of the best games uh, of anybody in this postseason. And that's saying a lot because we've seen some really incredible individual performances but a 40-point triple-double from him carved up the Clippers' defense basically no matter what they tried to do. Clippers had a lot of success in that Utah series sending those late double teams at Donovan Mitchell. Didn't work nearly as well against Phoenix, and that's also a, a credit to the rest of Phoenix's supporting cast. You know, Mikhail Bridges, I've said it before, he's just like a wonderful off-ball player. And also DeAndre Ayton. I mean, small ball wasn't as successful against Phoenix because... DeAndre Aiden actually punished them for it in a way that Rudy Gobert couldn't. And so, you know, for all those reasons, I just think that uh, that the Suns probably, like, have a pretty significant edge um, to get out of the West, which yeah. is wild. The Suns, yeah. the Phoenix yeah. fucking Suns. Yeah, man.
0: Nuts. Crazy times. Well, unless you have anything else to add to this 80-plus uh, minute <laughs> Podcast, which I think you do based on your facial expression. Well, I man. just want to
1: say one more thing because we we, we like sort of skip past the jazz, but I, I I just want to say Donovan Mitchell is that dude. Yeah, and Rudy Gobert. You know, is not,
0: I, that's what you were going to say, right? If I know you, that's what you were going to say. And Rudy Gobert is most definitely not that dude.
1: Well, it's not really about that. Like, I yeah, think both of those. No, I know, but like both those guys need each other mm. is the thing. But I, I think. You know, to make a sort of sweeping statement, there's always this kind of conversation, who's the mo- like the Jazz's most important player. I think Rudy's the, their most important player in the regular season. And I think without question, Donovan Mitchell's their most important player in the playoffs. I think he proved that. Uh, you know, the stat that I mentioned, he shot 45% on 11 and a half pull up threes a game in that series against the Clippers. This is far from the first time that we've seen Donovan Mitchell do this in the postseason, right? Like this was the guy that we saw in the bubble against Denver last year and he very much proved that that was not some kind of one-off or some kind of fluke. He's a big game player. He is absolutely built for the playoffs and like his game uh, translates exceptionally well. I do think, you know, like the playmaking limitations came to bear, which is why I think, you know, the Clippers double teams were as effective as they were and why their switching was as effective as it was. Um, because a lot of the time, you know, Gobert was slipping and he wasn't able to make that pass. But as a scorer, I mean, absolute certified stud. So yeah. that's all I got to say.
0: All I have to say is that I think uh, it's really funny that um, Quinn Snyder ensured that we still can't say Rudy Gobert gets played off the floor in the playoffs because <laughs> he was... For all intents and purposes, played off the floor in that closeout game. And uh, Quinn Snyder wouldn't let it happen. Kept him on the floor. Stuck well, uh, with yeah. his guy. Stuck with his guy.
1: I mean, what was the alternative, though? Right. Which is, you know, maybe a question that the Jazz have to answer going into the offseason. Is like, uh, maybe you need a better alternative to that than Derek Favors. Like maybe you need to have the option, I guess, in a moment like that to have a small ball lineup of your own that you can turn to
0: yes well we've reached the end of another marathon episode of pound the rock i was going to say hopefully this isn't wolf on's last one for a while but that's a weird thing to say because it would be a beautiful blessing if uh if it is his last yeah. one for a while so i
1: personally hope that it is
0: all right well then there you go so let's <laughs> uh play it by ear and whatever happens happens and uh, hopefully this is his last one for a while uh if that is the case i will try to hold the fort down maybe bring some guests on and have some uh kind of random episodes here and there. I'll keep it to at least one a week. Uh, In the meantime, fan shout outs this week. I'm going to get two in there because we're starting to get them backlogged again here. Uh, The first one goes out to Kagya. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. K-A-G-Y-A-H underscore on Twitter uh, replied to me during one of my tweets about Italy during the Euro which if you follow me on Twitter, know that I'm tweeting about way too much the last week and a half, uh, letting me know that he loves Pound the Rock, said it's like a basketball Bible for him, said he's a day one fan, uh, and that Wolfon and I are a dynamic duo. Kegya is a listener, a day one listener from Ghana. So another international shout out to add to the mix. Uh, and you know what? He even specified Ghana, West Africa. So if that's how he wants it, shout it out. Shout out West Africa and also Ghana, great footballing nation as Italy is. And the second shout out for this week goes to Kyle at the Stockhill on Twitter, who reached out to say he loves the pod, loves the great knowledgeable takes. Um, All right. And we still got two in the chamber for the next episode. Usual call out. If you're a fan of the show, let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been a listener, and we will get you a shout out in the coming weeks. All right, Wolf. Godspeed, Always a pleasure, Cash. Godspeed.
1: Thanks, man. Talk to you soon.
0: Peace.